Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Oh, well, welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be back with you this Wednesday and plenty coming up this hour, including... Another humanitarian crisis, tens of thousands of people at risk after a crucial dam collapses in Russian-occupied southern Ukraine. Many still trapped in their homes and hundreds of thousands now without drinking water in what the president has described as an environmental catastrophe. The very latest just ahead. Plus, teed off, starred golfers grumbling over the secrecy surrounding a monster sporting tie-up. Saudi-backed Live Golf is now joining forces with the PGA Tour. The deal also ending what had become a bitter legal and moral, let's be clear, battle. We'll have a live report on the latest. And Volvo's show, the auto giant rolling out its latest fully electric SUV in Europe. A vehicle they say closes the pricing gap between EVs and combustion engine cars. Volvo Cars CEO Jim Rohn will reveal all later on the show. And speaking of the road ahead, Wall Street struggling to get into first gear. U.S. futures and European stocks little changed after a weaker Asian handover. Disappointing Chinese export data not helping. It's raising new fears about Chinese growth and the demand pull from elsewhere in the world. Details on that just ahead. And the S&P 500, however, begins the session at nine-month highs and close to bull market levels once again. The Nasdaq also at 14-month highs. Take a look at that. Small caps have actually been outperformers too. Also today, the Turkish lira hitting fresh all-time lows versus the dollar. You can see there the dollar higher by around 5.5% versus the Turkish lira. One reason being cited is the lack of dollar reserves available in Turkey to support the currency. What you have to do is you sell dollars and you buy lira, but if you don't have enough dollars to sell, well, then you can't support your currency. Ultimately, what you end up having to do, of course, is raise interest rates. Hmm, lots to get to today, as always, but we do begin with the latest from Ukraine. And mass evacuations are underway following Tuesday's collapse of a major dam. As I've already mentioned, more than 1,500 people forced to leave their homes in southern Ukraine and fears also rising over an ecological catastrophe too. To quote President Zelensky, he called it an environmental bomb of mass destruction. Fred Plaikin has the latest from Kherson. 
After the catastrophic destruction of the Novokarkovka Dam, as you can see, there still is a lot of water here in the city of Kherson. And one of the things that we've been really surprised about is how fast that water has been rising. In fact, just yesterday when we were here, we were, I'd say about 100, maybe 150 yards in that direction. But now that entire area is inundated. You can't go there anymore. At the same time, the rescue efforts are ongoing to free people from their houses, people where the water rose so quickly that they couldn't get out, as you can see police here, the army's here, they have some boats here and they've been trying to get the people out. Now, this is an, uh, an operation that was ongoing throughout the entire night. That's what the authorities were telling us, that they would not rest. But it's also one that was ongoing under nearly constant shelling. We were hearing that throughout the entire night. We've been hearing it throughout the entire course of the day, is that there's shelling. It seems to be coming from multiple rocket launching systems, but also from artillery as well. And as you can see, if you go over here, it's not only people that are being saved from the buildings here. From but authorities, also from we animals as well. There's a lot of cats here uh, in these cages. And one of the things that we're also seeing is the rescuers coming here and then they'll have the animal or two with them that they've picked up from maybe a fence or maybe a rooftop. Obviously, a lot of those animals also very much in danger, as are the people who are still caught in that area. Fred Pleitgen, CNN, Kherson, Ukraine. And on to concerns, too, about global growth slowdown potential driven by China. New data showing Chinese exports falling by a greater than expected 7.5% in May. That's actually the first drop since February. The numbers suggest consumers are buying fewer Chinese goods, which might put brakes on China's economic recovery or at least slow it down. On the other hand... Chinese imports beat expectations last month, although they also fell slightly. Mark Stewart is here with the latest. Wow, Mark, I'm glad you're on picking this and not me. But I think what the overriding message is, certainly when I look at this data, is China can't rely on trade to help support economic growth over the coming months. That is certainly one ingredient in this bigger picture, Julia. Look, we knew that exports, we're going to see some kind of decline. There has been a, a weaker appetite, both internationally and domestically. As you said, this was a little bit stronger, a little bit more harsh than initially predicted. Uh, some economists surveyed by Reuters uh, were predicting a much smaller decline. But, but here we are. You know, it was just last week that we got some manufacturing data and we saw a decline. In fact, one of the, in fact, it was actually the work, weakest manufacturing quarter uh, period uh, since the COVID lockdowns were lifted uh, last December. So there are challenges, certainly, with the import-export market. But we also heard from an analyst who pointed out that right now China is still dealing with a weak property market. Uh, and uh, as well as another wave of COVID that is coming across the country. And then also the youth unemployment, still very high. And that is also slowing things down. That is a group of individuals, the, the younger demographics, which is supposed to have a lot of buying power. But right now, Julia, that seems to be very stilted. This is such a great point, Mark, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. We, you and I have talked about this on the show before. I think the current youth unemployment rate is just over 20 percent, and that's what um, the Chinese government admit to. So you have to wonder whether it's significantly higher than that. What about the people that are graduating now, taking exams, hoping to come into to the workplace and are sort of looking around and, and wondering where they're going to work? 
Right. A record number of young people are taking this college entrance exam. And unlike the United States, the SAT, unlike the United States, these students only have one chance to take it and then hopefully have a score that's strong enough to get into their university of their choice. But with so many people taking this, a record number of students hoping for higher education, it does pose this question, well, what happens after graduation, with so many highly educated people there, will there be enough jobs? One concern in the in the education sphere in China has been a, mis- a mismatch of education levels and jobs. Now, if you're graduating a very highly educated workforce and there are only so many positions, that is going to create a whole other series of problems. But nonetheless, this is a very important time in China. Um, There are restrictions about noise. There are students who are lighting incense. They're going to temples to pray for high performance. You know, we do put a big premium on the importance of education, especially with workplace success, with financial success and longevity. It's interesting that this actually could be, Julia, a potential problem even. Yeah, absolutely. And we do um, keep our fingers crossed for all of those that are taking these exams. One shot and you're done, Mark, as you said. You don't get to do it again and again if you need to. Um, Our thoughts with those people. Mark, great to have you. Thank you. Now, onto some brighter news in the United States with the recession risk reduced, apparently. Goldman Sachs says the probability of a U.S. recession within the next 12 months is now 25 percent. Back in March, they said that probability was around 35 percent. They're citing two bright spots, the deal to lift the debt ceiling and the easing of the banking crisis that we saw earlier this year. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, this is the most hotly anticipated recession that seems to be never coming. I agree, Julia. This really might go down in history that way is the recession that everyone feared that just didn't actually happen. I mean, here we are in the middle of the year. We are precisely when many economists said that we'd be in the middle of a recession. And now we have Wall Street's leading investment bank cutting the risk of a recession, saying there's just a one in four chance over the next 12 months. And they did cite uh, the fact that the banking crisis. It might not be over, but it's also not as bad as people feared. And that the debt ceiling drama, that is over. And it's not just Goldman Sachs. Um, Some leading economists, including Mark Zandi and Justin Wolfers, they're telling me that the risk of a 2023 recession is fading fast. Um, I think that people got too euphoric, Julia, in early 2021 when the vaccines were coming out and President Biden was taking office. Um, And they probably got too pessimistic because of high inflation and the war on high inflation. And the truth was probably somewhere in between. But listen, it is great news that the risk of recession does seem to be fading here. Yeah, fingers crossed it uh, to our earlier point, it never comes. Now, speaking of the debt ceiling, I know you've got some intel of um, sort of high level conversations that took place in U.S. Congress with um, certain CEOs perhaps saying, uh, let's not do this again. Let's not have this showdown again. That's right. Uh, Jamie Dimon, perhaps the most powerful uh, CEO on Wall Street, he met with moderate House Democrats uh, yesterday for a closed door lunch. And during that lunch, I'm told, according to a person familiar with the matter, he advocated for abolishing the debt ceiling. He said, quote, get rid of it. And he called the debt ceiling a, quote, unmitigated disaster. Again, that's according to a person familiar with the matter. He made uh, similar comments, Jamie Dimon, to reporters afterwards. Now, would Congress actually get rid of the debt ceiling? I don't know. I mean, we know that some lawmakers say they hate the debt ceiling, but we also know that some of them love uh, the power it gives them to extract concessions 
when they're not in the majority. I think, Julia, more likely we could hear some discussion around reforming the debt ceiling. Mm. And can we talk about one more um, high level individual as well? And that's Martha Stewart, um, a powerful, if not booming voice at times, slamming hybrid work and, and concerned that um, if things carry on like this with people working from home, that America's going, quote, down the drain and it's going to end up like France. We're all going to retire at 64. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Martha Stewart is clearly <laughs> not a fan of this remote work uh, trend. Uh, she does not want it to last. She did say that she fears that America will, quote, go down the drain if this uh, trend continues. She questions whether or not people could really be that productive working from home. I think that there's many working moms and dads who would argue the exact opposite and say they're even more productive at home, especially if they don't have to do the commute. She also knocked France. She said that... Um, we could that the United States could go the way of France, calling France a quote not a very thriving country. I would push back on that. Um, France is ranked 19th according to the World Bank and the OECD among 38 countries, so right in the middle, just behind uh, the UK, ahead of Japan, Italy, South Korea. That's uh, as far as GDP per capita. So I don't really think that she's right there either. I was about to say she looks absolutely fabulous right now, but there will be people thinking that um, those couplets not fabulous. You can choose. Matt Egan, great to have you. Thank, Thank you. you. And Pope Francis is in hospital in Rome to undergo surgery for a hernia. The Vatican saying the pontiff will be there for several days as he recovers. In the latest health concern for the 86-year-old Pope, he was last hospitalised, if you remember, back in March with bronchitis. Bobby Nadal joins us now from Rome with the latest. Bobby, what more can you tell us about his health at this moment? Well, he's expected to go under, undergo surgery this afternoon for uh, a hernia, which is related to surgery he had two years ago on his colon. Now, this is the second time this year he's been in the hospital, the second time in two years he's had surgery, abdominal surgery. So people, of course, are concerned. The Vatican is quick to say they expect a full recovery, but this is an 86-year-old man with a lot of health issues. He's almost com completely confined to a wheelchair because of knee problems. He has sciatica. He was, as you said, in the hospital for a, an infectious uh, bronchitis in March. If any of us had elderly parents or grandparents, the sage would be very worried about them. And so, of course, people are concerned. But this is, it must be said, not an emergency surgery per se. He was here in this hospital yesterday afternoon for a quick checkup. He conducted his audience in St. Peter's Square this morning uh, to a full crowd. And then he came here in his car, uh, be being driven, obviously, uh, not in an ambulance. And this surgery, of course, is, he's expected to be here for several days. He's got to be better, though, by August. He's expected to go both to Portugal at the first part of the month and to Mongolia at the last part of the month. So it's very much possible that they're just trying to get him to be as comfortable as possible, as healthy as possible before a grueling summer schedule. Julia? Yes. And uh, fingers crossed for a full recovery and a swift recovery too. Our thoughts are with him. Barbie, great to have you. Thank you. Okay, straight ahead on First Move, the big reveal, Volvo's latest electric SUV, fresh out of the box as the company gears up for a combustion engine-free future. And a grim warning about world hunger, millions risk going without food if a crucial deal to export Ukrainian grain fails. That's later in the show. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to First Move and Unveiled today here on First Move. You're taking a first look at Volvo's new fully electric SUV. It costs around $38,000. The EX30 is priced to compete with combustion engine equivalents. The company expects this to be one of its best selling models as it moves towards an all electric lineup by 2030. And on Monday, Volvo posted a 31% rise in sales for May compared to a year ago. It's another sign perhaps automakers are recovering from the impact of COVID lockdowns in China, chip shortages and other supply chain issues. Jim Rowan is CEO and president of Volvo Cars, and he joins us now from the EX30 launch event in Milan. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. Talk us through the new launch. What does this vehicle offer potential customers? Uh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, great to talk to you guys. So the EX30 is going to be a fantastic addition to the Volvo portfolio. Uh, it's a small car uh, with fantastic proportions. We've, we've pushed the wheels uh, to the up to have small overhangs on both sides, maximizes the use of the cabin space, 480 kilometer range. We're going to offer this as well uh, with a twin motor or a single motor. We will offer it with two different types of batteries and technologies and two different types of battery sizes. We'll offer it in five different colors and we'll offer it with four different interiors. So this is really going to be a car that allows you to choose exactly what's right for you. If you don't need range, you can have the smaller battery. If you don't need power, you can have the single motor. If you do want that bigger range or that bigger uh, or, or that more acceleration, then of course you can choose uh, the bigger battery sizes as well. And we think this also will talk to uh, a different customer than we currently talk to right now and will help us expand our customer base. Uh, we'll offer this in subscription-based ownership as well as outright purchase. Again, that's just going to make it much easier for people to come into the brand. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll start to see this pick up very quickly as uh, one, of our, uh, one of our top selling models. Okay, uh, what and if it, I want and of course it all? It's a massive part towards our, uh, towards oh. our electrification journey. Okay. What if I want it all? What if I want maximum range, maximum speed? What's it going to cost me, Jim, on the road? You you can have maximum range and you can have maximum speed. We haven't really released the pricing right now. We're going to release that later today. But let's just say it's going to be very competitively priced and it will fit well within 
uh, the Volvo portfolio of pricing. So the EX30 is the smallest SUV. Of course, we have the 40, the C40, we have the XC60. Well, we just announced the EX90, which is the biggest in the range as well. And we think this plays a really important part in our portfolio as we expand towards full electrification by 2030. Yeah, are we at parity economics now, Jim? To, to your point, and I know that the sort of messaging around this has been, look, it is comparable, and that's the aim to have it comparable to combustion engines. For most people, I think you know, this is how we unlock greater adoption. That, of course, and taking out some of the anxiety over the capacity or the ability to be able to charge this when you need it. Just address those two things for me. Are we at parity economics? How long does the payback take on, on this vehicle specifically? Yeah, so you've got, you got to look at the, the technology itself. So electrification of, electri- electrification of, of mobility, it's simply a better technology. There's less noise, there's less vibration, there's much less servicing costs for our customers. So if you look at that total cost of ownership, in many parts of the world, driving an electric mile versus a petrol mile is much cheaper uh, as well. Uh, and so for us, that technology uh, and the benefit that you get from that technology, even with before we start to talk about climate neutrality and the benefits to the planet. Uh, as you get to that, that, the, the cost question around cost neutrality, we're getting extremely close now. New technologies within batteries, new technologies within inverter modules, new technologies within motors and electric motors is all driving uh, the efficiency. And that is helping us get either longer distances in the same chemistry of batteries or with LFP technology, which we'll offer in the new EX, the first time I've ever offered LFP technology, which is a much more cost-effective battery uh, propulsion system, that gets us really close to that uh, that price parity that you that, that you uh, uh, alluded to. Yeah, because I do think this is the key to, to accelerate adoption. Let's talk about charging too. What we've heard in the last month or so is... Um, obviously not necessarily with this vehicle, but more broadly with electric vehicle adoption, um, Ford and Tesla tying up and Tesla providing access to their superchargers for Ford vehicle owners. Jim, do you see something like that potentially for Volvo or do you think you can go it alone on the on the charging infrastructure? Because I think for Ford, this is being perceived as a real boon. Yeah, we already have fantastic charging infrastructure uh, offerings to our customers globally, but I think I think the Inflation Reduction Act will serve towards building out that infrastructure, obviously, especially in North America, where you see a lot of investment now going into that charge infrastructure. And I think you're just going to see that accelerate. We're starting to see the same thing happen, of course, in Europe and, of course, uh, in the big markets in Asia. Uh, And the technology is also changing within that. So these high power um, charging uh, uh, chargers will allow you to charge the car much more quickly than before as well. And all of this combined uh, will will have an imp- a, a positive impact, let's say, in reducing those friction factors towards full scale adoption of, of electrification. And we see that in many markets that we that we see already. For example, in Volvo, we already have uh, about 12 to 15 markets now that have got 85% of every car that we sell is either a full BEV or a plug-in electric hybrid. Mm-hmm. And that that change has happened really just in the last year or so. We see a lot more markets now approaching the halfway point uh, of every every car that we sold. In fact, in Norway, 85% of cars that we sell are now fully electric. In Sweden, it's almost 40%. And in the Netherlands, it's 43%. So we're really starting to see it accelerate. And I think part of this uh, part of that acceleration profile is this uh, simplicity of charging and charging infrastructure. 
Yeah, taking out some of that anxiety. I think some of the other things we're seeing your competitors do, though, is um, cut prices around the world. Jim, can you be resistant to that? You're getting the pricing right and don't need to adjust lower to, to create that sort of lift, that further lift to demand? Well, so far, you, you, you've got to look at demand. So we've, we look at the underlying demand for our products. And the right. underlying demand for our product has remained increasing, you know, incredibly strong. Plug-in electric hybrids, but more so even in our full beds, BEVs. Uh, and we see that globally. Uh, now, you know, we keep a really close eye on that because of rising inflation, rising energy costs. Of course, there's always the specter that you start to see some change in consumer sentiment. But when we look at the demand for our products globally, we don't see high order cancellations and we don't see a slowdown in order intake. And so that high backlog of order demand for Volvo products, it may be because we're in the premium sector and uh, that our, our customers can afford those price rises maybe a little bit more readily. But whatever the reason for that, we don't see a slowdown in demand. And I think we owe it to ourselves and I think we owe it to our shareholders and stakeholders that we, that we stay disciplined on our pricing policies. And so at this point in time, we don't, we don't see... Uh, the need for us to be reducing our prices on a global basis. Um, I've got a sort of off-the-wall question to ask you, but it's some conversation that I'm having with just about every CEO and manager of a business um, at the moment, and that's the impact of artificial intelligence. Um, here in the United States, yeah. in the space of two months, we've gone from, look, we need a pause on development of this to um, AI Armageddon. Um, Jim, how do you view artificial intelligence? How much research are you doing? How much work are you putting into it? And um, what do we need to understand about the impact on your business, be it your people, be it the technology? Yeah, so if you look at that's one of the really interesting things. In fact, if you look at the automotive industry right now, it's going through a double-headed change, if you will, a transition. On one side, you've got the technology change, and on the other side, you've got this commercial change where you're going direct to the customer and direct to customer engagement. But if we stick with the technology side, which was really the question, we're seeing a huge amount of product, uh, sorry, a huge amount of investment that we're making in batteries, battery technology, and electrical propulsion, and inverter modules, and software, and sensors, and cameras, uh, and of course, in silicon, which is at the very base of core compute technology. Added to that, and an accelerated to that, is of course artificial intelligence. And how can you adopt artificial intelligence in order to make your technology even more powerful. Yes, of course, we're investing in that. Yes, of course, we're looking at that very, very carefully to see the points of design, the points of development, the points uh, of benefit, if you will, to the customer where we can insert that uh, additional technology as an, as an accelerator to, to, uh, to change, if you will. So we're working on it. Um, it is still early stages for most, for most people, and you need to really figure out where it adds most value within your company. And that's what we're looking at right now. It's such an exciting time. I mean, to your point, you're going through this transition to new forms of, of cars and technologies um, and also having to deal with the overlay of, um, of AI and technologies like it too. Um, final question, because you mentioned it. Talk to me about what you're thinking with regards the dangers perhaps of increasing our reliance on the underlying elements and rare earth minerals required for some of these renewable technologies. Batteries is a great example of them. It's countries like um, Chile, Argentina, China, of course, perhaps your ownership helps there. Um, unstable ones like Congo, for example. Are you concerned that we're sort of shifting reliance on oil and gas nations and, and countries for perhaps other reliances? It makes them very powerful and it also makes the supply chain perhaps very vulnerable. Yeah, I think you need to look, look at where we play. So we, we are not the biggest automotive manufacturer, but our volumes are not as 
you know, as high as some of our competitors. We play in the premium end of the market and therefore we're going to stay focused on that. And we've, and we've remained disciplined in making sure that we stay premium. The EX30 is a premium car, even though it's a smaller car. Um, and the volumes for Volvo cars means that we don't, we don't come up against some of those challenges that you, that you allude to. Now, we're looking at lots of those dif different technologies, or lots of those different materials, if you will, and how we then track, trace, track and trace those different um, tech materials using blockchain chain technology. So I'm pretty comfortable in the way in which we are, are managing our supply chain, the way in which we measure our supply chain, the way in which we govern our supply chain, that, that, that we're doing the right things. And that's not to say we can get complacent, of course, as things change. But as it stands today, uh, I'm confident that, that we're doing, we are doing the right things in terms of making sure we know where those materials are coming from and how, how we process those materials to get them into the final product, such as batteries, as you alluded to. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Um, regular viewers will know you're not allowed to mention blockchain technology in the final answer of interviews because that's a whole other conversation started. <laughs> Jim, we have to reconvene, and not just on that. Um, congratulations on the launch, and thank you for your time today. Um, Jim Rowan there, the CEO and president of Volvo Cars. Thank you, sir. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a dramatic U-turn in the world of golf. What's behind the stunning tie-up between the PGA Tour and Live Golf? I'll give you one guess. Money, next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Jeddah. The State Department telling CNN both men affirmed a shared commitment to, quote, stability, security and prosperity across the Middle East and beyond. The meeting comes at a time when U.S.-Saudi relations remain strained. They, of course, dipped to a low point after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. U.S. intelligence says his killing was personally approved by the Crown Prince. For more, we're joined by CNN international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson. Nick, not just that, of course. That feels like a long time ago now. We've got Israel to discuss, relations with Iran. Just in the last week, the Saudis tightening oil supply further. There was much to discuss in that one hour 40 meeting. Yeah, there was. And, and the oil supplies obviously bite two ways for the United States and Secretary Blinken's interest next year is uh, an election year in the United States, a lasting President Biden needs. And of course, he's the one that sort of created a lot of the tension with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman because of what he's been saying about uh, Saudi's human rights abuses and how it needs to sort of correct course on that. Um, High fuel prices at the gas pump in the United States is not a good formula uh, for a U.S. president uh, running for a second term. But of course, as well, high oil prices, because Saudi reduces its output, helps us, uh, Russia fund its war in Ukraine. And that, of course, is an important topic for, for, um, president, uh, for Secretary of State Antony Blinken to address with, with the crown prince. Um, the crown prince sees himself as, as a big diplomat. He sees himself as somebody who can help uh, establish a peace between uh, Ukraine and Russia, although I don't think even he thinks he can do it in the short term. But yes, uh, for, for Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, there's a huge amount to talk about. I'm talking about ISIS, I'm talking about Sudan, talking about talking about Yemen. It's the Yemen and Sudan, really, where United States and Saudi have had sort of good commonality over the past few months. And I think that's sort of something Secretary Blinken wants to build on. Certainly. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us. Thank you there for joining us from London.
And a surprising new alliance in the world of golf, too. And, of course, it's tied to the previous story. It's less than 24 hours since an announcement that stunned the sporting world. The controversial Saudi-backed Live Golf joining forces with the long-established PGA Tour and DP World Tour. It's being billed as a moment that changes the game all over again. The new partners had until now been at loggerheads. So is a deeply divided sport now reunited? Amanda Davis joins us now on this. Amanda, there will be, and there are clearly, because they're expressing their views quite candidly on on Twitter and across social media, um, for the players that didn't decide a year ago to join Live Golf and remained and um, sort of fought that battle, they could have signed up a year ago and next year have it all. Ouch. Yeah, I think it's fair to say at the moment, this partnership should be looked at as a divisive union because up to this point, there's been no middle way at all, has there? You have been in with Live Golf and you have been out. So when the Saudi-backed league was announced, it was seen, it has been completely seen and believed to be a disruptor to the sport. And it's not just been talked about in sporting terms, but also in moral, in ethical terms. And that is the language that has been used over the last 12, 18 months by players and also organisers of the old establishment, the likes of the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour, as you mentioned. But this really did come as a bolt from the blue. We know it's a commercial partnership. A lot of the details we're still waiting on. You mentioned the players who gave up, decided not to take the huge sums of money to join the Live Golf Tour. But of course, many did. Perhaps not surprisingly, they, the likes of Bryson DeChambeau, are seeing this as a monumental day for golf. This is the best thing that could ever happen for the game of golf. And I'm extremely proud to be a part of that because of the fact that the fans are going to get what, what they want. Uh, the players are going to experience something a little different, a little new uh, on the PGA Tour side. But I truly believe in the end, the game of golf wins in this scenario. He would say that because, I mean, Bryson DeChambeau is somebody who this has been a win-win scenario. But we talk about the people who have lost out. And a lot of the focus now is on the PGA Tour Commissioner, Jay Monaghan. He is one of those who very emotively talked about the moral issues of players who were turning their back on the old tradition of golf to take the money from Saudi Arabia. And he has seemingly spun on a a dime or perhaps a, a few million and is now very much the face of this talking about what a great future it is going to be for golf. And there's a lot of players feeling really, really let down. They were blindsided by this decision. A lot of them finding out on Twitter as they're in Canada, preparing to take part in a a competition. And perhaps not surprisingly, a few of them are calling for Jay Monaghan's resignation. It was contentious. Uh, There were many moments where certain players were calling for new leadership of the PGA Tour and even got a couple standing ovations. But there was a lot of anger in that room from players, that feeling like they can't trust what the leadership of the PGA Tour says anymore. Did any players call Jay a hypocrite in the meeting? It was mentioned, yeah. Some, some yeah. And, he saw, and he took it. He said, yeah, he, he took it for sure. 
There's no doubt a charm offensive uh, needed from Jay Monaghan uh, and a fair few of the, the top leadership in golf. Rory McIlroy is the man who has been seen as the moral compass of golf over the last 12 months, having uh, decided not to join the Live Golf Tour. He is the defending champion at this event uh, in Canada this week. It is just a year this week since the launch of the Live Golf series. And he is expected to address the media for the first time uh, in actually within the next hour or so. So it'll be fascinating to see what he has to say. Yeah, fascinating. There are still going to be people that are saying that morals were set aside here for money. Money over morals. We'll see what he says. Amanda Davies, thank you for that. Now, some news about CNN. And Chris Licht, the chairman and CEO, is leaving the company after about a year on the job. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav announced the news this morning. He says a wide search will be conducted internally and externally for a new leader. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. The Black Sea Grain Initiative, which has been crucial in tackling a global food crisis resulting from the war in Ukraine, could be ending. The deal established last summer has been extended three times so far. But this week, Russia said if its demands are not met, it sees no prospect for extending the deal beyond the middle of July. Moscow's demand? Well, the reopening of a pipeline that carries Russian ammonia to Ukrainian port for shipping. Grain exports have already fallen sharply. 33 ships sailed from Ukrainian ports last month. That's actually half as many as we saw sailing back in April. Ukraine, just to remind you, is a major grain exporter. It accounts for around 10% of the world's supply of wheat, 15% of the corn market and 13% of world barley. Now the charity The Hunger Project says if the grain deal fails, it will put millions of people at risk of severe hunger or famine. The UN estimates that even before the war, up to 10% of the world's population was threatened by hunger. Joining us now, CEO of The Hunger Project, Tim Pruitt. Tim, thank you so much for making time for us. As we were just describing there, the Russians, at least at this stage, are threatening the end of the deal. Just describe to us, given the, the people that you serve and help, what this might mean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, every few months, right when this deal is renegotiated. Millions of people are literally on the edge of their seats. They do not know what is going to happen with the price of food. Now, we saw the effectiveness of the deal when grain export prices dropped 18%, and that was felt in countries throughout the world, especially in Africa. Now, if prices stay high, that means people simply buy less food. And if people live on $2 a day or less, and they spend more than 70% of their income on food, that means going with less food, and that means more hunger and malnutrition. Yeah, it's a basic calculation. You buy less food if you have less money or the prices are that much higher. It just goes less far. Um, I mentioned that the shipments have already dramatically reduced. Tim, what impact has that already had, and, and how is it sort of changing 
who you serve and how you serve. We spoke to the World Food Programme chief um, several months ago, and he said that we're actually to have, having to make really tough decisions over sort of who we give food to and, and who we don't. Absolutely. Well, at the Hunger Project, our emphasis is on long-term resilience to shocks such as this, not only the price of food, but also climate shocks and other events. So what we emphasize in our work, which helps to steady the price of food, is growing local. Growing local can reduce dependence on these external prices and get more healthy and nutritious food, even fresher food, to people that need it. Now, in terms of what we're seeing, definitely we're seeing impact already. If you look at the the history of this grain deal and what's happened, every time that markets have to pause and we see the flow of grain stop, we see an immediate response from the market and the prices go up. This is especially true in wheat, corn and oil, essentials for people to eat. I love your point about resilience, though, Tim, and and the work that you do at The Hunger Project to try and shift some of that production and supply more locally. Obviously, we don't want to um, sort of reduce the amount of of support that's provided to to Ukrainian farmers in particular. But to what extent over the last sort of 16 months since the wars begun, have you been able to substitute away from Ukrainian grain just to try and add some stability to, to the food that you're providing? Thank you. Well, at the Hunger Project, what we see is the resilience and the commitment of people that are living with hunger and poverty to respond to this. They're taking the initiative to grow more food. We are there as their partners, and we're seeing them invest more in their smaller local farms. We're seeing them do more. In Uganda last year, I visited a farm that was just growing pumpkins, and they managed to expand their production and feed many more people with pumpkins and even processed it to a pumpkin paste that could be used throughout the region. Wow. So it's not even just necessarily about diversifying in terms of product. It's perhaps allowing them to produce more so that they can sell it. Absolutely. And this is an opportunity. We have an opportunity to grow more food locally, which we know is more healthy and nutritious for people. If it came down to it, and I know it's sort of bringing the geopolitics into it, which is clearly not your business, would you be pushing for Russia to be able to continue its ammonia exports if it keeps this deal together? Tim, you know what the, the sort of consequences yeah. are better than most. Yeah, no question. I mean, that ammonia from Russia is also a critical piece of this, this puzzle as it's part of fertilizer. And fertilizer, when we, we lose fertilizer, there's, an, there's a later effect Farmers buy less fertilizer, and then they end up growing less, and then the cycle continues of greater dependence on those imports. So in an ideal world, free flow of goods from Russia and Ukraine, including that fertilizer and ammonia. Yeah, it's not so simple as suggesting that um, all products should be sanctioned in Russia. There were carve-outs for grain, and um, this one needs to perhaps be considered as such in order to unlock this deal, as as complicated as it is. Tim, for people watching, what can they do to help? How do they um, help support the Hunger Project? Well, thanks for tuning in, first of all. I think greater awareness on our food systems and how they impact people is absolutely critical. Our food systems have become incredibly complex, but at its root, it's about people growing food locally. And that's what I'd like to emphasize is the more food we can grow local, not only in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, but here in the United States. The more we can grow locally, the more healthy our food systems are. And what about waste? 
because this is my other mm. bugbear, Tim. I try and reduce yeah. as much waste as possible because we throw too much away. Absolutely. And there's two sides of the coin. Here in the United States, we lose a lot with our restaurants, our grocery stores, our, our food systems like big hospitals and schools. A lot is thrown away. We're working on it. I've seen major policy initiatives come around that is are helping that. In sub-Saharan Africa, there's another problem, and that is they lose food before it gets to the consumer. It's called pre-harvest loss or just post-harvest loss, where they're not getting all of the food into the hands of the consumers. Either way, if you take up all that food loss and food waste and you calculate the impact on the environment, it would be as big as a carbon emitter as the third largest country in the world behind the US and China. So that is a serious issue, not only for our, our, our food and our communities, but also for our environment. Yeah. Tim, fantastic to get your insight today and, and fingers crossed this deal holds. The CEO of The Hunger Project, thank you for the work you and your team are doing. Thank you. Okay, stay with CNN. Coming up, Prince Harry back on the witness stand for a second day. We have the latest from London's High Court next. Welcome back to First Move, where we've got one eye on stocks and another on the skyline, at least here in New York. This is what it looks like outside our New York City studio. The air quality is, in one word, abysmal, as smoke from out-of-control Canadian wildfires bros blows across the northeast of the United States. This was the view above New York's Yankee Stadium Tuesday evening, a thick haze darkening the skies, the air smelling strongly of smoke too. New York, in fact, had the worst air pollution of any city in the world at one point yesterday. Get those masks back on. Yes, I said it. Um, and no investment haze at least on Wall Street, U.S. stocks powering ahead in early trade. Now we're out of first gear after the S&P 500 hit nine-month highs on Tuesday. Tech among the early session winners. And in the meantime, Coinbase shares trying to bounce back after Tuesday's 12% tumble. Shares falling after U.S. officials sued the crypto exchange for violating securities laws. The U.S. alleging the company acted as an unregistered broker. Another major crypto exchange, Binance, in serious legal trouble too. Reports say the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is asking for an emergency order to freeze the assets of Binance U.S., after filing suit against the entire exchange on Monday. And Prince Harry is back in the High Court of London, being cross-examined in his second and final day on the witness stand. The prince is suing Britain's mirror group of newspapers, alleging their journalists hacked his phone to gather information about his life between 1996 and 2009. It's the culmination of a years-long fight against the tabloids. Max Foster joins us with the latest. Max, what happened today when he was on the stand? What did we hear? It was a bit of a continuation. It did get really awkward at points because a lot of these stories are tabloid stories and they are, you know, um, salacious in their detail. So he was asked today about his night out at a lap dancing club and how his girlfriend at the time, Chelsea Davey, had a big argument about him with him about that. Uh, obviously not 
the detail of the story, which was central to this case, but how that story got out, Harry convinced uh, that it came out from some form of phone hacking. But what you had was the, the mirror lawyer going through each and every story, suggesting that there could have been a different source to that story, which wasn't through phone hacking. Uh, so that was the, the, how things sort of progressed throughout this, and it got increasingly uh, more lively, if you, if you like, as it got towards the end of the cross-examination. Harry has a much broader point here, is that a lot of these stories were very suspicious. He had a lot of experience with these types of stories, and he felt they were suspicious and they whiffed of hacking. It'll be for the judge to decide whether or not any evidence was really proved about that hacking and whether anything could be upheld against the mirror. They absolutely deny all of these charges. The cross-examination is now over, and now reporters who are accused of uh, publishing hacking stories are being uh, cross-examined by Harry's lawyer. So the case does continue. It's a test case. and It would have big, big repercussions because if Harry wins this part of the case, it would suggest that there are many other cases to come for these big publishers. Yeah, it's interesting. They seem to be going for maximum embarrassment in terms of picking through these stories too. But I, I saw that he was also asked if he'd be glad if he weren't hacked sort of trying to sort of play both sides here from the lawyers, asking him whether, you know, if these were um, stories that came out as a result of something else, someone else leaking. Um, interesting sort of question to ask him, and I thought he handled it really well. How's the press covering it, Max? Um, well, you know, there's so many different elements to this, so all the different UK media are taking different angles, really. Mm. Um, you know, there is this much broader picture, which is his wider battle against the tabloid media. So there are three different cases going on which consume all the different tabloids and that's the bigger picture and how he suffered as a child and I think there's no doubt that he did suffer as a child and uh, he wants some sort of justice for that and some reform to the tabloid media. Whether or not he wins this case uh, is one thing. I think if he can bring a lot of attention to the techniques that the tabloid media have used in the past, if not in reference to this case, then maybe his job is done, that he highlights the the, the dishonesty of the trade, if you like. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see um, how this ends, to your point, with far bigger implications if it, if it goes in his way. His way. Um, Max, great to have you. Thank you. Max Foster there. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.